Hello, you're listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones, and I'm your guest host this week, Garrett Schumann. Before we get to my interview with music theorist Philip Ewell, I just wanted to point out that he made his musical selections after we finished recording, so you will hear me cut into our conversation to set up performances of pieces by Will Marion Cook and Undine Smith-Moore. Additionally, in the course of our conversation, Phil and I talk about the textbook Harmony and Voice Leading by Edward Aldwell, Carl Schachter, and Alan Cadwallader. Uh, We specifically reference that it is still in use at the University of Michigan. I have since learned that they started this year no longer using that book, that they use it up until the winter term of 2020. So I just wanted to include that point of information before we get started. And without further ado, let's get to my interview with music theorist Philip Ewell. Affable, lighthearted, determined, unafraid. Philip Ewell is an associate professor of music theory at Hunter College of the City University of New York, where he serves as director of graduate studies in the music department. His specialties include Russian music and music theory, Russian opera, modal theory, and critical race studies. He received a 2019-2020 Presidential Award for Excellence in Creative Work at Hunter College, and he is the Susan McClary and Robert Walzer Fellow of the American Council of Learned Societies for 2020-2021. to In August 2020, he received the Graduate Center Award for Excellence in Mentoring, which recognized his, quote, ongoing long-term commitment to students at all stages of graduate research. He is also a virtual scholar in residence at the University of the Pacific Conservatory of Music for 2020 to 2021. And as a result of his ACLS award, he is currently working on a monograph to be published by the Music and Social Justice series at the University of Michigan Press, which combines race and feminist studies with music and music theory. Finally, he is under contract at W.W. Norton to co-author a new music theory textbook called The Practicing Music Theorist, which will be a modernized, reframed, and inclusive textbook based on recent developments in music theory pedagogy. Philip Ewell, thank you so much for joining us on Lexical Tones. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, as I as we were discussing before uh, we started recording in the green room, as they might say, um, <laughs> I think you might be the first music theorist to appear on the show, um, which is really great because so many of the people who um, who, who are so many people in our audience are people who teach music theory. They're just not. Um, they are composers or performers who also teach music theory and have all gone to music school and so have all touched your area of expertise in one way or another. So I'm so, ha- so happy to have you. And um, what would be wonderful to start is if you could uh, introduce us a little bit to your s- musical story. How did you get into music and how did you get into music theory? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me today. Um so I grew up in uh, Northern Illinois, DeKalb, Illinois, and my dad was a math professor at Northern Illinois University, and they've got a great music program there. And they, um, when I was growing up, the Vermeer Quartet was in residence. They were in residence for many years. And um, so we would hear lots of great classical music. And by the time I was in fourth grade, uh, there was the option to begin an instrument. 
had a wonderful educator, Arthur Monska was his name. And um, he brought in a violin and he brought in a cello. He played them both. And he said, if you want to start these in fourth grade, knock yourselves out. And I went home and said, I wanted to start cello. So that's how I started playing cello. Um, my dad was a big fan of classical music. So was my mom, but it was more my dad. And uh, he always played classical music at home. Um, so I kept playing and I went to college at Stanford University. I didn't plan on becoming a musician. I actually went to, to study physics or engineering because I was always really good at math and science. My dad uh, was a number theorist, not, not just a mathematician, but a number theorist. That's kind of like a mathematician's mathematician. <laughs> um, and so um, I, but I ended up kind of playing more and more music and saying to myself, this is actually more fun <laughs> than uh, engineering and physics and math. So I uh, declared music as a major. I played lots of interesting music. I got a master's in cello performance from Queens College. And that's when I began uh, a, a switch over to music theory because I had Carl Schachter for uh, a professor. He also advised my master's thesis and he was just such, he is just such a um, wonderful personality. He's got this great joie de vivre in the classroom and just made me laugh, made all of us laugh as he was teaching music theory. And um, I thought to myself, that's maybe I want to do that because uh, he seems to be having a lot of fun and he's lighthearted like I am. So um, I actually talked to him not too long ago on the phone, just a few months ago. Um, I would love to try to get in to see him uh, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I'm here, here in Brooklyn. I have but, been uh, to his apartment. Oh, you have? Excellent. Yeah, one, one of my friends at Michigan is his cousin, and mm. we were in New York at the same time, and we went to his apartment and talked about Morocco, because it's oh. one of his favorite places to travel to, and I had just been there. And uh, he, is oh, a, nice. he is exactly as you describe, an, a delightful, friendly, energetic man who really yeah. em embodies, I think, the work that he does in a really appealing way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, so I got bitten by the Schachter bug, I guess, at uh, Queens College. I finished my cello performance master's in 1991. But at the same time, I had um, really fallen in love with Russian music and composers and the way that they play their string instruments, which is like all out <laughs> um, and with lots of passion. So I ended up going to Russia to uh, study at the St. Petersburg Conservatory. This was the early 90s until about 94. And um, at the same time, I still had kind of thought about uh, music theory. So I was at the same time, I was applying to DMA programs and PhD programs. In fact, I had a great offer at the University of Michigan to do a DMA in cello performance, um, which just had, and I'm certain still has, an outstanding um, uh, DMA program, but I opted for the PhD. Um, at that at that time, it was just more money. It was a longer term instead of three years of money. Like at Michigan, it was I think six years of of guaranteed grad money, and those are you know reasonable considerations. Also, I think a PhD. You know, I realized that the PhD is a it's kind of a meatier degree. Um, DMA is kind of a more recent American degree. Whereas obviously the PhD is many hundreds of years old and worldwide recognized. Uh, so um, I did that 
And uh, yeah, there was uh, always a back and forth with Russia. So that's how I kind of became a music theorist and a Russian Russianist. I, I entered Yale for music theory in 1994, finished in 2001. And uh, yeah, I've been a professor since 2002, started at the University of Tennessee, um, two years at North Central College, uh, 20, 2007 to nine. And then I started at Hunter College in 2009. And, and here I am. There's a, a wonderful connection between your playing and your research and, and one of the things you published in Music Theory Online, which is an, an analysis of Sofia Gubaidolina, I believe. Yeah, Gubaidolina, yeah. Yeah, and you, um, you not only do is part of the, the paper a video of you playing the piece, but your analysis is based on the physicality of playing it. And so it really come what you the observation you made about sort of the Russian way of playing the cello, it, it connects very nicely uh, oh, to, yeah, to a... that piece. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they definitely have a, a very, very distinct way of playing uh, string instruments. I like to say as, as a cellist, um, I just heard my little thing go off. I'm going to close up my mail so I don't get little, little signifier or whatever notifications. Um, I often say that the Russian cello school, they, um, you know, in terms of their vibrato, uh, you know, this I'm showing, I'm showing Garrett here on my Zoom called like a normal, normal cello vibrato on my thing. There, you know, normal vibrato is just like a beautiful sound. But for the Russians, it's more like it spans about a minor third. <laughs> <You know? laughs> a nice, a nice vibrato. You're like, oh my goodness. <laughs> Maybe you should narrow that a little bit. Narrow it to a, a major second. Why don't you? <laughs> <laughs> let's let's start with that. <laughs> oh, oh, it's it's so interesting that you had this experience studying uh, music and music theory in a different country. I remember when I was in grad school at Michigan, and even though you rejected the Maison Blue, you are working with the University of Michigan Press currently. So Correct. it all all roads come back to Ann Arbor in some way, I suppose. <laughs> um, but. Uh, uh, one of my colleagues when I was in grad school was a music theory PhD student who was also, he did his dissertation on Russian music theory, and I hadn't even thought about other music theory traditions existing, because I was just fed, you know, what was through nine years of undergrad and grad school, like sort of the American version of the European history, which doesn't include um a, a lot of mention of russia and i'm i'm curious what that was like going back and forth between these two distinct academic worlds of, of music theory how that changed your perspective or informed your perspective on on you know doing your work in the united states as a as a theorist yeah that's an interesting question um it definitely gave me a wonderful perspective that's not common Right. I remember, uh, so I studied for an entire academic year with Yuri Halopov. He was the most famous uh, music theorist in Russia in the second half of the 20th century. Right. Many books, hundreds of articles, and uh, he died in 2003. And so I uh, worked with him for a whole year. I remember I put the uh, textbook by Aldwell and Schachter on the piano at, at one of our meetings. We would meet weekly, just the two of us for a couple of hours. And he started thumbing through it. And he's just like, oh, this is all wrong. What's, <laughs> what, what on earth are these authors doing? This is just, 
how could they do this? <laughs> and that was, uh, you know, that was probably in 1999, 2000. And it just kind of like stunned me because, you know, I'd always thought that that was such a great textbook. I still do in many ways for what it does, right? It's still the textbook at the University of Michigan. Well, how about that? Yeah. It, it, and it does have the, distinct, the distinction also, not a very positive one, of having 100% of the examples written by white cisgender men. Yep. That's just a fact. So let's just put that out there for, uh, on the table because it's, it happens to be true. Uh, nevertheless, back to uh, Moscow and Moscow Conservatory where we were meeting, um, that just kind of got me thinking about, you know, the traditions and, um, you know, there's been quite a bit of uh, ink spilled on uh, Heinrich Schenker over this last year. And I often like to say, I haven't said it, you know, recently at all, but I often like to say that in Russia, they have a very rich rich tradition of music theory going back, well, a couple of hundred years, really. Um, and more or less, not a single theorist has ever studied Shankarian analysis, ever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, you, you actually can take some classes on it now, but it's basically non-existent in Russian music theory. All 11 time zones of the Russian Federation, you know, from Vladivostok over, over to Moscow, or the border with Belarus, um, and uh, yeah, you're never really going to hear the name Heinrich Schenker in the Russian Federation. Yeah, you, maybe you'll hear it, you'll hear it now in Moscow and St. Petersburg, but nobody studies any Schenkerian analysis ever for, for the most part. So that just gives you an idea of uh, a different perspective, obviously. And it's, it's easy to realize that there are different legacies of music theory and uh, many different viewpoints and... Uh, and they're all valid, really. I, I, you know, one should not do what we do so naturally in American music theory and hierarchize uh, systems and, and peoples and beliefs. Uh, and that's actually what's happened. And that's unfortunate. It's a, I think it's a very American thing to, to try to construct sort of monolithic frameworks that we want people to conform to about how things should be done and, and the plurality um, that is represented by a centuries-long Russian music theory tradition that doesn't even involve things that are very central to what American music theory does um, threatens mm -hmm. the monolith. So yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it, it does. It, it can. And that's why there has been pushback to an extent uh, to uh, Russian ideas. Richard Taruskin's written quite a bit about that over, over the decades. Um, and I agree in large part that there has been an anti-Russian bias because of the German underpinnings of uh, American music theory. Um, and, and that plays out on many on many levels. For example, I, I, had a, I have an article on Rimsky-Korsakov in Music Theory Spectrum. One of the reviewers uh, said... This particular reviewer rejected the article, but the you know the editor had the good sense to realize that this was maybe not the best recommendation, and so they went to other uh, people, and ultimately the article came out. But this particular reviewer who rejected said, "Well, just because Rimsky-Korsakov did X, Y, and Z in his compositions doesn't mean he gets a place in the cemetery of great composers." Mm -hmm. And I quote, <laughs> and so for this. For this uh, reviewer, and let's be honest, this reviewer was almost certainly a white cisgender man. Um, there actually exists in his mind mm -hmm. 
a cemetery of great composers. And mm -hmm. let's be honest, once again, that cemetery is more or less the same cemetery that Heinrich Schenker believed existed, 12 composers uh, uh, of the tonal type. And then once you get into the post-tonal 20th century composers, you go ahead and then you go through your list. And the list is second Viennese school, three composers, mm -hmm. Stravinsky, Stravinsky Bartok. Okay, let's start with those five. And mm -hmm. then the hierarchy, then, then the hierarchy starts to be set in stone, right? You, then you go down from those to all the way to contemporary composers. When but, you finally uh, start to see maybe one or two women and possibly someone who isn't white, although mostly those people, uh, particularly black musicians whose music are in textbooks, aren't in classical music, which is... Yeah. Um, relates to uh, a concept, I think, I, I believe relates to a concept I heard you talk about in a, in a web presentation you did at the University of Illinois in the fall Possibly. about this assimilationism mm -hmm. and the idea of like only including, you know, these quote unquote diversely source ex sourced examples that like meet criteria that are, um, not sort of super respective of the traditions or the content of those diversely sourced examples. It's like the same standards that have come out of the extremely exclusionary canon and just trying to only find examples that meet those standards without thinking about what they represent and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you use the word assimilationism and yeah, that, that has been part of one of the talks that I've been giving uh, in the fall and now in the spring. Um, that, uh, well, then I get that straight from Ibram Kendi, of course, he's not the first person to talk about assimilationism, but he did give very clear language um, in his two big books, uh, Stand from the Beginning and uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And uh, so I use that, I apply that to music theory because that's exactly what a music theory has done. As I say in that talk, uh, we very much started as segregationists in music theory, American music theory in the 19th century. And as Jim Crow collapsed under its own weight in the 50s and 1950s and 60s, then a music theory more or less became assimilationist, which it still is today. In other mm -hmm. words, if you want to be a music theorist, if you want to do music theory, you must essentially assimilate to the white male methodologies. Shankarian analysis is but one, let's be clear. There mm -hmm. are many more. And then maybe, maybe, you will be allowed into the tent of music theory. That's generally the way things work. But music theory is most certainly not anti-racist to uh, finish Ibram Kendi's tripartite uh, thinking there. I'm looking up, I want to make sure I get the, this This um, makes me think of a book by Dale Spender, who's a gender studies scholar um, called mm -hmm. Man-Made Language, that, uh, th she published in 1980 and it's sort of about how the it's the same idea of what you were just describing and with respect to assimilationism about how the framework for the English language was totally defined by men and so from mm -hmm. a sort of feminist perspective um, she wonders like can a 
and and like with literature as well and there's there are other feminist critical theory as it relates to literature has also talked about this too from starting in the 80s and moving forward about how like the aesthetics of what great literature is is also totally defined by the works of white men so like can a a can, can like a language that isn't defined in that way exist? Would it exist? Or can works of literature by women, can they succeed if they don't also co-opt these aesthetics and that sort of thing mm -hmm. that have been defined and given value by men and sort of created in that image? And I think um, with music theory textbooks, like there's a lot of energy now of like trying to swap in new examples. And right. I, I think it's, I mean, it, this isn't the the first time people have made this argument, there was a, I think of this, um, there's a Dominique René de Lerma book mm -hmm. that's like the, the a transcription of a con one of the Black Music Center conferences at mm -hmm. Indiana University from the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And like, there's a whole chapter, a whole discussion between Undine Smith-Moore and, and a bunch of other people about like, here, if you're teaching this, here's an example by a Black composer that does this and that sort of thing. Excellent. And, mm -hmm. and, she, and there's a, a, a line that echoes in my brain of... Um, from 1971, Undine Smith-Moore being like, you can go, wherever you go in America, you hear black music on the radio, yeah. when you're in the grocery store. Um, but the one place where you won't find it is in music textbooks and undergraduate curricula. And this was like right. 1971. So the, mm -hmm. the push to have more examples is, is not new, but there's a lot of really great... Um, energy around it right now yeah um but it's it's complicated because if we only f use examples that meet criteria that were established when textbooks were trying to only teach music by white men do are we actually making that much change you know it's it, a it's a challenging question i wonder if this relates I, I wonder how this relates to your thought process with the book that you're working on um, with, with the te the textbook, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the textbook, yeah. Oh, it it, it relates quite a bit. Um, I um, so yeah, this is a wonderful opportunity to. Uh, I have three amazing co-authors: uh, Rosa Abraham, uh, Abraham's uh, Cora Palfi, and Aaron Grant. And um, we are uh, essentially trying to bring in some of the um, new stuff that's going on, right? Uh, we're, we're trying to codify many of the things that are happening uh, right now in, uh, in music theory. But there's, there's kind of a two-part process to this. I actually sent out a tweet a few days ago that summed it up uh, in 280 characters, I think, on the nose, <laughs> which is um, uh, adding composers uh, who did not identify as cis white men is diversity, equity, and inclusivity, right? DEI. Examining and exposing how and why such men created structures, institutions, and mythologies in order to benefit themselves while disadvantaging all others equals anti-racism and anti-sexism. The second one, uh, they're, they're both useful, but the second one is much harder mm -hmm. and the second one is more impactful. So if we're just talking about adding composers, that actually doesn't threaten white cisgender men that much. Mm -hmm. They realize that they can't have a textbook 
that has one. Well, I, I, most people realize, but apparently Michigan still has the Alwell Schachter. Okay, good luck. Um, but most people realize that it's unacceptable to have a music theory textbook with 100% examples by white cisgender men. And white cisgender men are like, okay, fair enough. Let's add some people who are not white cisgender men. Of course, white cisgender men really, really don't like using the word white. It's very, mm -hmm. very difficult for, that, for them to do that. It's a little easier for them to use the word male and man. It's very hard sometimes to just utter, even utter the word white uh, for people who want to maintain the status quo. Nevertheless, the addition of some composers like that does not threaten white cisgender men. What does threaten them is the anti-racist and anti-sexist work that I'm doing, which is examining and exposing the injustices of systems created by, of, and for white cisgender men to benefit themselves while disadvantaging others, all others, let's be clear, um, because that actually can, can break the system down. That threatens the existence of those white cisgender male structures and institutions. In other words, that's a bridge too far. And that's why people have been very angry in some of their uh, commentary about Philip Ewell and his work. It's really not about uh, me, although they, they try to make it about me oftentimes. Interestingly, most angry commentary comes from England, actually. Yeah, I should say that by far and away, the commentary I get on my work is positive and it's, it's overwhelmingly so, even from England. I'm simply pointing out that of the angry, um, and I mean up to and including a death threat, by the way, which recently came in about a week ago, um, uh, by far and away, the, the most of the angry stuff comes from England and then the United States and a little bit from Austria. When none, none of that should be that surprising to any, anybody, anybody listening to this uh, conversation now. But back to um, the structure of, of music theory in the United States, um, one thing I like to talk about is uh, how and why uh, jazz has been so excluded. Although I'll just briefly mention a point that you made that uh, uh, one composer I like to bring up is John Thomas Douglas, uh, who was, whose mother was a slave. He was born in 1847, died in 1886. Uh, he studied in Italy with uh, Edouard Rapoldi and uh, then in France and Paris a little bit and then came back to the States. Uh, maybe that was a mistake. Uh, he ended up drinking quite a bit and he died. Uh, he wasn't even 40 when he died. He taught David Manis in the 1870s, uh, violin here, right here in New York. He wrote a three act opera called Virginia's Ball and it was performed at Stuyvesant Institute in 1868. And um, so, you know, there are these amazing stories uh, of so many uh, black uh, musicians who are actually writing music in, in a West quote unquote, Western classical tradition um, who have been- And engaged and engaging with European classical Absolutely. musicians, like you say, because um, in in New Orleans, the um, like Charles Lucian Lambert, Sidney Lambert, this family of composers, active around the same time as Douglas, they just went to France because it was too racist in the United yeah. States, and they had amazing amazing careers yeah. in Will, France doing classical Will Marion Cook studied with uh, Joseph Joachim yeah. uh, in Berlin, and uh, and then came back to New York and wrote lots of musicals. Um, Hazel Harrison, 
uh, went to Berlin and, and sol soloed with the Berlin Philharmonic. It's not an easy thing to do, not an easy gig to get. Mm -hmm. But back to jazz, um, I, I, I like to make the analogy, uh, people ask uh, often in Zoom calls that I'm on these days, um, why is it that jazz is kind of, you know, cordoned off and treated separately from music theory? It would be a very natural thing to incorporate into music theory. Um, because jazz music theory is extremely rich and the traditions are, as we know, uh, amazing and great. It's, it's probably America's greatest historical musical export for the world. Um, and I like to make an analogy actually with healthcare. I'm looking here at my screen. I'm rereading this article by uh, Janine Interlandi. Uh, and this is part of the 1619 project. And the title of this article is, why doesn't the United States have universal healthcare? The answer has everything to do with race. Um, and I, I, I didn't get a chance to reread it before our conversation, but I think I remember enough to, um, to remember that it was Harry Truman who tried to get uh, single payer healthcare right after World War II, when many countries that had enough money and resources were ramping up national healthcare systems. Um, you know, national healthcare didn't, didn't always exist. Um, and he said, we're going to do this. And um, ultimately, once it, it had enough political backing, it was going to pass the legislative process. And something happened, the American Medical Association, which is basically white doctors. And at that point, you don't even need to ask, they were all men, right, cisgender. Mm -hmm. They said no. And they started lobbying and they were able to kill single-payer health care in 1948. Why did they not want it? Because they didn't want to integrate the hospitals. They wanted the black floor to remain the black floor and they wanted the white floor to remain the white floor. They just didn't want to deal with segregation because of race. So the analogy to jazz is why is jazz not part of a music theory curriculum? I know that it's because of race. <laughs> That's why, because white <laughs> music theorists did not want to integrate the curriculum when those curricula were being written in the 60s, 70s, 80s. No, I mean, there's all kinds of evidence being put out there that essentially says, oh sure, jazz is fine. Of course, jazz was not fine in the 20s and 30s. It was this horrific uh, you know, mm -hmm. aberration. We need to, 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 to squash it and we need to just stop it because it's an awful, awful influence because it was black. And by the 50s and 60s and certainly the 70s, white America was like, okay, fine. It's there, it's not going anywhere. We can handle it. Sometimes we even like it, but for heaven's sake, we're not gonna put it into a music theory curriculum, please. That had everything to do with race. It was race. It wasn't the music that kept out jazz from our music theory curricula, it was race. In exactly the same way as 1948 in the American Medical Association. I think it's a really good analogy because um, it, it's just solid. It's like, yes, that was the reason we don't have single payer healthcare system because of race. We don't have an integrated music theory curriculum because of race. It's, it, it strikes me as very, very strange that an undergraduate music theory curriculum will not have as at a, a part of a core really element, jazz and the composers who make up jazz that's 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 a travesty really because that's american music and we're in america we're educating our students as americans and yet we still actually believe 
that the only music that really matters was this music that came from far, far away across an ocean. And it's not even European. It's we can actually just say it's Viennese. It's not, it's not even a continent. It's not even a country. It's a little city that's probably a couple of hundred uh, square, uh, a couple of hundred uh, square kilometers. And, uh, and yeah, that's it. That's the only music you need to know. I mean, yeah. Right. Well, that's just not going to last. It's, it's being dismantled and as well, it should. This, um, this is something I think about a lot because as a composer, an American composer, uh, I wonder often, like, what what does that even mean? Because so much of my education had nothing to do with American music. And it's like kind of yeah. something you're left to reconcile on your own. Um, I, I thought of as you were, that's a very wonderful analogy. I, I agree with you. There are lots of other parallels with um, the United States' is, uh admirably terrible social safety net that I think relate to the same forces. Um, oh, sure. Oh, sure. Uh, but I was also thinking about a couple, I think it was in 2018 when Kendrick Lamar won the Pulitzer Prize for composition. Mm-hmm. And there was a big uproar in the composition community about this. And and, and what I read was that the committee um, was was considering these pieces by white composers that were heavily influenced by hip hop. And they decided Mm -hmm. instead of like, why reward hip hop only when it's laundered through the music of white composers, let's just reward hip hop. And then they did. Mm -hmm. And, and there was the, the reaction was, um, animated to say the least on social media and got Sure. Pretty dark, but and a lot of um, you know, people being you know making procedural arguments like, oh, this doesn't count. He doesn't even call himself a composer, that sort of thing. But, but just like what you said, mm-hmm. it had nothing to do with the music, at all. The music right. is has influence, and like with jazz too, and composition, like, you know, we can't teach jazz, but we will maybe look at the Ebony Concerto by. Igor Stravinsky, or um, right. or or uh, we yeah. won't teach ragtime. Well, maybe we'll talk about Scott Joplin a little bit, but we also have Barely. to talk about mm-hmm. um, William Bolcom's rags or something like that. And mm-hmm. and th- mm-hmm. th- it's the same reiterations of you know the same behavior. Which uh, if you're if if you are aware have any sociological awareness reflects a structure that's in place, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm very interested in the title of your textbook, The Practicing Music Theorist, because in my experience doing music theory a little bit, not as a trained music theorist, but kind of falling into doing research and then also teaching it a bunch because I've had a... um, peripatetic adjuncting career where I've taught at five universities and five different curricula. And um, I've experienced working with music theory quite a bit. And the idea of thinking of it as a practice instead of a thing, as like a monolithic mm-hmm. ideology or something has really resonated with me and my students. And I, and I think that it can help reorienting what we think music theory is as more of a right. practice instead of like a 
knowledge tradition or something and something more mm-hmm. grand than that I think is really helpful and and I'm and so I was very pleased when this was announced to see that I'm curious what how you all decided on that and then how that idea of practice is making it into you know how you're structuring the book and that sort of thing yeah, thanks. Um, well, first off, I should just say that my three co-authors are so outstanding. I'm learning so much from them. They're kind of of the same generation. I'm like mid-career, right? And they're relatively uh, soon out of their PhD programs, Rosa and Cora from Northwestern and uh, Aaron from Eastman. Uh, they've certainly like within the last four years, I think they they finished. Um, and uh so I'm really learning so much from them. And what we're trying to do, all of us, is, is reframe what, what uh, the undergraduate curriculum looks like. So yes, the practicing music theorist, because um, you know music theory became so very arcane with the textbooks that are out there and, and just quite, quite far removed from the practical experience of making music. So uh, what we're trying to do is uh, emphasize rhythm and meter kind of throughout the book, that that is just part of what music theory is. We're trying to get into some uh, gestural and dance aspects of music, embodied experiences, cognitive experiences. Um, we have, uh, we're still, we're still we, we, we talk often about language and how, how, how will we refer to the Western canon? That's not an accurate, that's not a good distinction the Western canon. Most everyone realizes that this is a construct, right? The Western canon, like Western civilization. A lot of people still try to push back, but they're very old. And um, the, the people who are pushing back are just, they're, they're losing the argument and their numbers are falling pretty fast. Let's just put it that way. Um, so uh, when you're reframing a, a field like this, it's a very difficult thing to know how to even call something. I was about to say world music, but we don't like that. We don't really say that. We do talk about global musical traditions, for example. Um, and that's, that's a more accurate way of, of talking about music's coming from the globe, right? One, one, one part of the globe is, uh, is Vienna, like mm-hmm. I mentioned five <laughs> minutes ago. You know, that's, that's also part of the globe, right? But it shouldn't have the privilege that it has um, that was based on uh, racist and sexist structures that were erected by of and for white cisgender men over the centuries. Um, so we have kind of this, this a global perspective with the book. Um, there are many different types of music in there. But without question, we do come uh, around to and again, we're still having difficulty finding the right language because we don't want to just say Western tonality. We don't we don't want to call it that. Um, and so I can't I can't give you the the, the language right now because we haven't quite settled on it. But but you know we, we can we can call it harmonic functional tonality, common practice period. There are lots of ways to talk about you know dominant sevenths resolving uh, to a tonic chord and the seventh resolving down by step, part writing, and all that stuff. So when we uh, do get to talking about tertian harmonies, we do, because without question, they're extremely important in the history of music. We, obviously, we talk about Western notation. There's the Western word again, right? Um, how are we going to call it? Please, listeners, don't hold me to any one thing I'm not saying. I don't know. But yes, there's a grand staff. There are five lines on a staff, and uh, there will be some scores, and, and, and we will talk about... Um, 
some voice leading. We will talk about certain aspects of harmonic progressions. And when we do, we will, we will lean heavily on composers who would not have identified as white cisgender men. And we will have composers who would have identified as white cisgender men. And as I've said often, uh, instead of having 40 examples by Bach, we'll have two. That's fine. He, he deserves a, a, an example on a, on a page. Uh, so does uh, Haydn. Why not have an example by Haydn? Because it's a good example of, I don't know, maybe there'll be a half cadence in there. We'll have a discussion <laughs> of cadences. Um, there are certain things like figured bass that'll be completely gone. That'll be an appendix in the back of the book right next to like chord charts and Nashville numbers and, and other shorthand methods, tablature, um, other shorthand methods for writing music. Important historically, completely more or less uh, unimport unimportant today for a practicing uh, musician. Uh, the idea of having to know figured bass. If you want to conduct Dido and Aeneas from the keyboard, by golly, you should know figured bass and there should be a path for you to study figured bass at your institution. But the idea that anybody, stu everybody studying music theory needs to know figured bass, that's just ludicrous. So uh, we have to reframe these issues. We do it through different uh, peoples, cultures, traditions. You know, we'll have a chapter just called the blues. We, there will be jazz theory in there. Um, it's, it's, it's quite invigorating actually thinking about this. Uh, it's not gonna be a perfect textbook. There, there's no such thing as that. And as this first uh, instantiation, the, uh, the first edition, there's gonna be lots of problems, but, uh, but nevertheless, it's uh, absolutely necessary. There is no music theory textbook like this out there. I think everybody can have a group nod that that's the case. And um, yeah, we look forward to putting it out. Hi, this is Garrett again, here to introduce the first musical example requested by Phil. Uh, because we were just talking about Will, Mary, and Cook, Phil suggested Cook's song, Dreamin' Time, which you will hear performed by tenor William Brown and pianist Anne Sears. This recording comes from their 2006 album, Swing Along, the songs of Will Marion Cook. Enjoy. Man. 
Exciting as someone who has really geeked out on pedagogy in the last few years because I've done so much teaching. Um, it's really exciting to see you all, your group, have this opportunity to write a book like this. I think um, there, there are a, a couple of things really stood out to me from what you were describing. Um, the first being like starting with these really accessible experiential aspects of, of listening to music like gesture embodiment meet rhythm and meter right now i'm teaching a liberal arts music class for the first time that i that i designed um, for the university of michigan and um mm -hmm. none of my students are music majors two-thirds of the class have never played a musical instrument and it's all about trying to get them to think critically about listening and so mm -hmm. we focus on certain aspects of, of a piece melody rhythm texture timbre and the and the one that we don't talk we have mentioned briefly but we don't really talk about because it's too technical is harmony and i think some mm. something i um have observed a lot in my teaching career is the sense that conservatories and music schools are under attack, that their resources are being taken away constantly, and, and people filter that sense of precarity into targeting people like you who want to mm -hmm. um, change how things are done at music schools. Um, I don't think your ideas are threaten music schools at all. I think they put them in a better position because if you could make music school instruction accessible to liberal arts students, to general education students, then your music school can't have its resources taken away because it services too many members of the university community. And what yeah. we do is so specialized now, it's really easy. And, and 
the motivation for that specialization, uh, I think in my experience I've seen is really centered around the orchestral focus of performance degrees. That when, mm-hmm. um, uh, when I taught at Appalachian State University, there was a, uh, a, a decree from the Board of Governors for all the North Carolina public universities who, you know, of course these people are all um, Republicans. They, um, mm. uh, not so, sorry to get political. Um, and... <laughs> <laughs> and we had to lower, they lowered the credit hour threshold for degrees. And so we had to find a way to remove th- like three credit hours from the music degrees. And of course it came to cutting classroom instruction in like music history and music theory and that sort of thing. And and the third rail, as it were, was cutting performance lessons. And this is a tr- people in the in the faculty the tense faculty meeting about it the music history faculty was like you know whenever this comes up we're always take g- giving up our credit hours and so that the performance faculty don't lose required lesson time and sort of that mm-hmm. like that's what's taking the time away to talk about beethoven or whatever it's not it's not restructuring the curriculum um, it, it's right. because we literally have less time to talk about things. And then actually it makes more sense to be more general when you have less time because you can convey useful information to students in various specialties a little bit more easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think um, I've sort of forgotten my original point, but I really like the idea that you, how you opened up describing your book as something that's really about like a more accessible experience of music and sort of making sense of that that doesn't require you to right. necessi- to be able to read music or have a performance um have performance skills or something like that i really i really enjoy that yeah we hope that it will be that type of welcoming textbook that's for sure and also to your point about um you know music programs and music majors and degrees and 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 whether they can survive in the 21st century um you know our neo neoliberal academy is is a is as a is a beast. I don't like the neoliberal liberal, neoliberal academy, but I do often point out a few things that are actually positive. Uh, one thing that's positive about the neoliberal academy is hey, they want that they're always going to look at the bottom line. How many majors do you have? How much money are you bringing in? Okay, fine. Well, why not bring in more majors? That's probably going to make administrators and the neoliberal academy happy. So instead of having 100 music majors, isn't having 200 majors going to benefit the music department? Now, it might not result in tenure track and tenure jobs. I get that. That's a different kind of battle. But it's really hard to be cutting music programs as the number of majors goes up. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, how how do you get it to go up? Well, I've got a few ideas. (laughs) You stop doing the exclusionist, the radically exclusionist music theory core for one, and then you can do lots of other things. Now, of course, you know, creating a few different tracks like they did at Harvard, which is a very positive step. That's a good thing. Allowing students to do, you know, music industry and sound engineering, people who didn't start playing violin when they were four, you know or even I who started playing when I was nine, cello, you know, people who couldn't afford lessons and all that, but who, who are very musical and are very interested in music. And there are many, many careers out there that aren't playing cello in the New York Philharmonic, right? 
you know, no one's going to play, get a job playing cello with the New York Philharmonic. And they'll probably never hire another tenured cellist because they just farm it out like the neoliberal mm -hmm. academies, universities. They farm it out to per service folks. I know those folks. They're hell of a players and they, they could be tenured, but they won't win the gig because it costs too much to hire them. So if we're thinking about, if we're thinking practically and we're thinking about the health of music departments and schools of music and, and conservatories for that matter, well then the restructuring, the reframing that I and my colleagues are thinking about with this book, but I also in, in other work uh, is actually very, very positive for the, it's a healthy thing to do for the study of music in the United States. I think also another image that comes out of your research, and I think specifically from your blog that you did over the spring, but you've mentioned it here too, about how mm -hmm. there is a place for these traditional canonized composers, but it's a place in a much, much larger musical world. So like Vienna right. is part of the globe, but it isn't the whole globe. And right. in, in, in a surprising twist i'm going to make another analogy to a social program in the united states like you did with universal healthcare something i think about mm -hmm. a lot is i heard an interview with i can't remember who they were but they were somebody who had helped administer the social security administration during the clinton um white house and this was in like 2018 or so and uh the uh President Trump and the Republicans were thinking about cutting Social Security. And what they were saying is like, the way to make Social Security work is not to make it smaller and more efficient, it's to make it bigger. And the way for mm -hmm. it to survive is to make it bigger and do more. And I feel like music programs are, it's sort of the same, make them bigger, do right. more exactly like right. what you're saying. Because the truth is, just like what you said about jazz, like the music, the music's it, it resonates. It connects with people. Just because it's not in mm -hmm. the curriculum, that can't stop jazz from being influential and appealing and, and, and you know, having its tradition. Um, every one of our students, no matter what their specialty or major is, they care about music. They relate to music. I was saying 99%. There might be a couple of people who really hate music. Um, yeah. and music, music programs could totally be servicing all of those students in different ways. Um, but, and we have for, you know, too long focused on a really, really narrow view of what music programs are supposed to do. And you could have a large department of Shankarian theorists in a music program that is like doing a, a ton of other different things. It's the, we have the proportions are all wrong. And so, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And the proportions are all wrong. And, you know, the structures that were erected in the history of the country, not just in terms of the academic study of music, but in our, you know, universities, well, they were reflective of the United States writ large. Well, and what was the country? The country was a white supremacist patriarchy. Nobody should fall off their chair when I say that. We, we, we finally had a president who, who at their inauguration said the, the term white supremacy. That was Joe Biden, January 20th. And God bless him for that because he simply stated history, right? Who could own slaves? Well, black people couldn't own slaves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that wasn't legal. <clears throat> you needed to be white and you needed to be a cisgender man. 
those actually um I, don't quote me on that uh i think white cisgender women could probably own slaves legally mm-hmm. uh i'm not an american historian so but i think the the point should be very clear that white supremacy and patriarchy were baked into the country from the very beginning you know starting with 1776 and then the constitutional convention 1787 you know a ton of researches has been done on that i don't need to um say these things to to the listeners but it's impossible that the institutions, the musical institutions, New York Philharmonic, 1842, Metropolitan Opera, 1883, New England Conservatory was, I think, the first, uh, 1857, I think. Yale School of Music was 1894. Oberlin was way, was the 1860s. It is impossible that our music institutions were not reflective of the white supremacist patriarchy that was the United States of America. That's just not possible, right? So now not many people are going to argue with that. I imagine a few would, but that's, you know, less than 5%. Most, most everyone's going to say, yeah, fair enough. But then you get into the whataboutism, the both sides-ism, and then you get into the, oh, it's not like that anymore. That was then, this is now, blah, 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 right? Well, no, uh, it, it, it is quite influenced by that history. And one of the big things that I do in my work is I just connect the dots. I'm like, okay, give me a decade. I don't need to go year by year. Let me go at least 10 years by 10 years. And I can connect the dots right up until 2021 to show, I mean, goodness gracious, you just said that at the University of Michigan, they use the Allwell Schachter. I studied with Carl Schachter. He was awesome. And that book literally features 100% musical examples written by white cisgender men. How is that not white supremacist? And how is that not patriarchal. Well, I do know the 20th century arguments that they're going, that people will say, this isn't about race, this isn't about gender. I know that, right? But here's the thing, make those arguments, fine. Nobody really believes it anymore. (laughs) Nobody really believes that. So instead of just trying to use the same old arguments, put a new spin on it, both sides it, do whatever you do, I think people are finally going to have to just realize, and, I, and in, in, to the credit of, of many of my senior colleagues, and when I say senior colleagues, almost by default in music theory, I'm talking about white cisgender men, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't even need to, I don't really need to qualify senior colleagues with, with those identifiers. Um, I have to, you know, give credit where credit is due. Many of them have written me, you know, told me personally on a Zoom call or whatever, that though though difficult to hear some of the arguments I make, um, they agree. They say, or at least they say, I'm not disagreeing with you, Phil. I I just have to digest it a little bit because it's it's not easy to hear that the system that I helped create is unjust and unfair with respect to race, gender, and other identities. Let's not forget. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfair it is and change we must. So there, there you have it. Um, I, I think that that change will come though, and it's coming a lot sooner than I thought it would. It's, I, have to be honest. I think like for me, I am a white cisgender man and I was in, I was studying composition at like good universities, Rice University for my undergrad, University of Michigan for my graduate school, for like eight years before I had a black cohort mate. And I never Mm -hmm. wondered 
why don't I have a black cohort mate? And, and then, and then it struck me. Um, I mean, there were other people. There were people with other ethnic backgrounds, so it wasn't totally white. But it, it, it sort of, when it hits, it it, it can be hard um, to realize. Oh, I was comfortable, if not complicit, with this very exclusionary, unjust, white supremacist system that I never yeah. thought twice about for a long time, that I have meaningful connections to. But then at, you know, at, at that point, it's like, well, what, you know, let's do something about this, you know? Right. And it's right. interesting. Yeah. I think there is, you, 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 you touched on this sense of recursion. Like you can connect the dots through time of like echoes right. of the same kind of thing. Like, and, and, what a lot of what you argue in, in your research, your recent research is not necessarily new ideas. It's just restating facts that people have chosen not to take seriously or consider or have been erased. You know, the facts of like these composers with these identities exist, they should be part of textbooks or. Right. Heinrich Schenker wrote these things about black people. Like we should think about this. Um, right. I think about in um, there's a book, uh, a, a scholar from the 19th century named James Monroe Trotter, who uh, mm -hmm. wrote a book in the 1870s that like catalogs 19th century black classical musicians, composers. There's actually a piece in the appendix by John Thomas Douglas who you brought up, um, oh, an, an overture. Uh, to one of his operas, and it's a piano, and, and that and that music uh, uh, is extant. Yeah, yeah it's it, on it, IMSLP. Uh, sur survived. Yeah. Excellent. Um, okay, good. And uh, and um, you know, he says in the pre preface to the book, like the reason we don't know about these classical musicians is because of white racism against black people, and and then I mentioned Undine Smith Moore a hundred years later saying. You know, we don't, black composers, black music isn't in an undergrad curricula because of racism. She doesn't say that, but she, it's implicit. Yeah. And then you're, you're part of that tradition too now. And, and, and yeah, you know, she wrote a, a music theory textbook. I think it was 1969 mm -hmm. on Dean Smith Moore. I did not know um, that. Yeah. My, my colleague and friend, Ayanna Smith at, I, at Indiana told me that recently so um, I'm really looking forward to uh, getting my hands on that uh, manuscript and, and taking a look at it. But um, I, I had a couple of uh, thoughts about um, what you just said, being part of the, the a, a white structure and never really thinking about it, going mm -hmm. through it. You're, you're a, a good 10, 20 years younger than I am, I imagine. Uh, but I could say exactly the same thing about my time at Yale in the 90s, um, just kind of not even thinking about it because because white male frameworks don't want us mm -hmm. to think about it. That's quite intentional. Now that I uh, am quite open, explicit about these things, there's no question that I am, as a good friend of mine once said uh, to me, that I am a gadfly to music theory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In fact, that perhaps should have been one of the adjectives. <laughs> gadfly, <laughs> or, or, or noun, I guess, to describe me. But the, the, and it's funny because yes, I am. I think I am a gadfly to music theory, certainly to the Society for Music Theory, because I'm critical 
of the things that I could see it, it improve. But here's the thing, and this is maybe a sad point to follow up with. I've always been a gadfly to music theory by virtue of the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. That's hard for music theory to hear, but it is spot on accurate. I have too much melanin in my skin and too many naps in my now graying hair mm -hmm. and thinning, by the way, <laughs> as you can see, to not be a gadfly. That's what black people have been to music theory. So one statistic I like to point out because music theory publishing is extremely important, right? It's how you get into the academy. It's how you get a job. It's how you get tenure, et cetera. So I'm very critical of the Outstanding Publication Awards, for example, with about 99% of 160 awards have gone to white people, right? But I also looked at the infrastructure of the uh, SMT publications, right? Going back to 1979, Music Theory Spectrum, that's when Music Theory Spe Spectrum first started publishing. And now uh, the Society for Music Theory has five official publications uh, listed on its website. And I counted 71 people who are currently part of those publications, editorial board, advisory, this managing editor, editor, that there, you know, lots of titles for people who run these publications. And in large part, it's pro bono work. And I, I salute that. The point that I make is actually quite simple. Going back to 1979, the Society for Music Theory has never once appointed or invited. There has never once been a native born African-American black person serving in any capacity whatsoever for any Society for Music Theory publication since 1979. How many people am I talking about? Well, there's 71 in 2021, mm -hmm. at least 500, let's maybe a thousand, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't have the data, but I put that stat out a few times now, Twitter, Facebook, and in a talk I gave at FSU uh, back in January. And I said, hey, please somebody correct me if I'm wrong. I, I welcome the corrections. Nobody has, I'm just gonna go ahead and say that that's an actual stat. So there are two things that, that white frameworks will say after that. The first thing obviously uh, you can predict is, oh, well there, there are none or there were none, mm -hmm. right? Yep. That's, that's the first one. The second one is even worse. Uh, that's just not true, it never was, let's just be clear. The second one is even worse. And this has to do with adding like adding a black composer to the Metropolitan Opera that's never performed an opera by a black uh, composer, for example. The second point that, that white frameworks will say is, oh, well, maybe there was a person, maybe there was a piece of music, but it's no good, right? It's not as good as, as Wagner. It's not as, mm -hmm. as great uh, or, or as exceptional. That's, that's a word that usually gets, gets uh, flouted. So just uh, to point out, uh, Horace Boyer got a PhD from Eastman in 1973. His classmate there, uh, Lucius Wyatt, uh, finished a PhD in 1973. Calvin Grimes finished a PhD from University of Iowa in 1974. So let's just be clear. There have been Black people getting PhDs in music theories who could have served on an editorial board as an editor in any number of capacities. Going back to more or less the beginnings of PhDs in music theory, there really weren't many more before 73. I mean, PhDs in music theories probably, I don't know, when did they start? Late 60s? Not, they didn't exist, 
The Society for Music Theory itself didn't exist back then. It's what is it, 45 years old, something like that? I think yeah, it's roughly 1980 roughly, or 1979, I think. Yeah. 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 So let's just be clear. This is known as anti blackness. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's anti-blackness. So one of the big talks that I'm doing now, the one that I gave at Florida State, is is entitled On Confronting Music Theory's Anti-Blackness, Three Case Studies. And um, I'm giving it a couple more times. I'm giving it at Columbia University in March, March 26th. I'm giving it at the Texas Society for Music Theory on March 6th, I think. So you can go to my website. And um, I think those will be open to the public. Uh, It's not an easy talk to hear, it's a personal talk in many ways, but um, un- I have lots of receipts of anti-blackness mm. now, lots of receipts. And when I show those receipts, uh, does it cause some discomfort? Yes. Is that discomfort a good thing? Yes, yes, doubly. In other words, it is time to sit with some discomfort. It is time to not be cowed into silence. It is time to, to face these truths. Uh, now is not the time to just, uh, as Martin Luther King said in his I Have a Dream speech, now is not to, the time to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Um, now is the time to uh, for social justice for all of God's children, as um, he said. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's en- enough. I don't I nobody can gaslight Phil Ewell. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> Heaven knows they try, but they're wasting their time with me. Uh, and you know, the gaslighting can be quite overt. It can be subtle. Like, no, you really do need to know figured bass in order to be a a jazz saxophone player at the master's level. No, you don't, you don't, you just don't. It's just that simple. You don't need, you don't need to know how to not write parallel fifths between alto and tenor. Also, you don't need to know that to be a jazz percussionist, uh, at a DMA program for jazz. Don't need to know it period. And please, uh, don't be gaslit. Uh, uh, and, 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 and let people tell you that you do. So it's not, it's time that we just, fa- I, I would like to hear SMT respond. Why is it that there has never been a black, uh, native born black person, African-Americans to serve in any capacity whatsoever? What answer does the Society for Music Theory have? Well, so far they're quiet. Uh, they have not given an answer. We'll see, maybe they will. I have lots of friends, lots of colleagues at SMT. I salute the people who do that work pro bono. I really do. And I hope that they can take my criticism uh, in the spirit in which I offer it, which is betterment for the field. I'm trying to help. You might not think I am. You might get angry with me. And you're going to call me a gadfly probably. And uh, and I'm okay with that. I, I think... It's, I think we're so lucky to have you doing this work and, and, and accepting the vulnerability of being a public face of, of this, a lot of this, this work. And um, I, I have thought of James Baldwin two times in your talking and two, two lines of his that I'm going to paraphrase terribly, so I apologize in advance. But when you said that you criticize music theory because you love music theory. It's like he he said he criticizes the United States because he loves the United States. And I feel that That's feel right. that very much with you. And then also mm-hmm. um, his line about we cannot solve a problem until we face it. You know, the SMTD can't change, I mean, SMT, mm-hmm. sorry, um, 
can't change until it acknowledges and reconciles this. Um, yeah. And and just as an example, I mean, the the rationale that you described of like, oh, either these people didn't exist or they um, weren't good enough to meet our standards. That that is reiterated so many times and throughout. Um, you know these situations of the establish the music academic establishment dealing with its exclusionary practices and um, mm-hmm. so before we before we go because we've been having a wonderful but I acknowledge lengthy conversation on the note mm-hmm. that you left us at what do you feel about the future do you think real change is possible like. Do you think new media, new technology makes it easier to convey information in a positive way? Is it bad Mm -hmm. because you can tweet something out and then a bunch of conservative UK classical music fans can drown you out on, uh, attempt to drown you out on Twitter? Um, Are there other things happening now that give you hope for actual transformation in the field? Or what do you, what do you think? Uh, yeah, uh, to, to, to use your word hope to begin with that, um, I am hopeful because I see such a groundswell among younger folks, younger scholars like you, um, you know, fairly fresh out of the PhD. What do you have a 2015, 2016 mm-hmm. PhD? 2015 DMA, yeah. an yeah. American a DMA. That's right. That... That's right. The American. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Um, well, you know, composition doctorates are sometimes both, as you yeah, know, yeah, right? Yeah. They, they, can, they can be either DMAs or PhDs. Um, but I see just a willingness to, to confront these issues. Uh, it's just such a rare music scholar uh, who is, say, I don't know, younger than 30 years old. I would even go so far as to say younger than 40 years old, who is not honestly looking at some of these issues and coming to some difficult, uh, you know, uh, realizations. Um, and when I look at all of the younger folks, and I, I talk to students as young as high school students who've reached out to me, many actually, it's very, it's very interesting, very invigorating. I'm always happy to talk to students. The higher up you go, you're going to need to pay me, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, I've had presidents of, of music institutions uh, and, and directors of schools of music contact me, and they have budgets, and I'm happy to take part of it. Mm-hmm. As you should. <laughs> because, As you should. Yes, exactly. Well, it's work, and, and uh, you know, I don't work for free. It's just that simple. But, but if it's a high school student, my goodness, yes, of course I work for free, and it's not work. It's just, uh, you know, guidance and, and a discussion, which is great. Um, but when I think about all of the conversations I've had with students as young as high school students and their thirst for these changes for racial and social and gender justice, uh, I, I, I am hopeful. Um, maybe I should have ended with that because I do want to say the less hopeful part, which is uh, the power structures of not just music, but, but all the academies of, of our institutions, of our, our universities. Those power structures are overwhelmingly white. There's no question about that. And they're also uh, maybe not overwhelmingly male, but certainly majority uh, male, uh, no question about that. And uh, when you realize, as George Lipsitz writes, the possessive investment uh, in whiteness, and I would add the possessive investment in maleness, you realize that uh, it's, it's kind of an existential battle for certain folks at the top of the power structure 
who want to keep the status quo. Um, there's a journalist, uh, Ramona Martinez is her name, and she says, objectivity is the ideology of the status quo. So those folks want to use objectivity. They're like, well, Beethoven was just the greatest composer who ever lived. I'm just being objective. It's just a fact because they play his music all over the place. And Shakespeare was the greatest writer. It's just objective. Why don't you just agree that that's just objectively the truth? Well, uh, that's an ideology, actually. And, and as she says, the ideology of the status quo. Uh, but that status quo is being questioned in a way that it never has. And it's lashing out in aggressive, angry fashion. I've been the brunt of a lot of that anger in music theory because I've made some good points, clearly. Uh, if I had written a blog and 10 people read it, well, you wouldn't have mentioned my blog, but it turns out that over 100,000 people have read my blog or, or viewed it at least in, in terms of the analytics. And it's been linked in uh, the New York Times and the New Yorker. Uh, among other news sources. So, and that's just something that came straight out of my head because I, I felt it was important. Um, so, uh, you know, that top power structure that's digging in its heels and just they're tripling, quadrupling down on the colorblind, uh, gender neutral, it's not about race, it's not about gender, Phil's wrong uh, because it's not about race and it's not about gender. Um, it just sounds so hollow in 2021. And, um, you know, people are saying, well, oh, can't we have a legitimate debate about these things? I'm like, well, I'm waiting for the legitimate debate. I love having a good legitimate debate. But one thing I won't do is debate my own humanity. Uh, my own humanity is not up for debate. And people who have tried to draw me in to debates to try to make it seem like Phil represents one side of an issue and then other people, conservative forces represent another side. There's no debate. There's no debate. I've never said that we need to cancel certain, I've never said we need to cancel Schenker or cancel Schubert as some people have tried to say that I've said, quite the opposite. I've said, hey, they're, they're fine. We're gonna still have them, but we need to rethink how we have structured the academic study of music in the United States, because there's a lot of structural racism and a lot of structural sexism baked right into the system. Furthermore, there's misogyny and there's anti-blackness. Those are two very key terms. I thank Kate Mann for so much clarity and her language and her great writings. And I hope that my writings are as, as, as clear as hers uh, in pointing out anti-blackness because that's what we have. We just have it. How is it that the Society for Music Theory has never turned to a native born African-American black person for anything in music theory publication? I happen to know, I have a, a friend at UNC Chapel Hill, Mark Katz, a musicology professor, a white cisgender man. And he and I had a nice conversation online. I, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me mentioning it because he's a musicologist and he was on the Spectrum, Music Theory Spectrum editorial board. And uh, I just want to point out that he was on that board and he was, he was asking me, just like, it's kind of interesting that I'm on that board, but I'm not even a music theorist, he pointed out to me. Um, okay, if we're going to have musicologists on our editorial boards for music theory publications, I could give you 500 names of black people. Mm -hmm. if, if, if we're only gonna limit it to music theorists, which apparently we're not because my friend Mark was on the, on the editorial board for Music Theory Spectrum, but fine, I'll, I'll, I'll give music theory this one. If we're gonna limit it to music theory PhDs, I'll give you a list of 30, maybe 50, okay? 
And notice I'm not saying Philip Ewell. It's not about me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is not about me. At, at this point, I, I'm very explicit. My participation comes at a cost. I won't join an editorial board where I am one black person out of 30, or there's one BIPOC out of 30. I very, I'm very explicit saying, oh, you want me to join something? Absolutely. As soon as you make it minimum 50% non-cisgender men and minimum 40% BIPOC, you've got Philip Ewell's participation pro bono. I will be happy to do that. Now, I don't know whether that will happen in my lifetime, but my participation now comes at a cost. Um, and I would, I would encourage other uh, people of other marginalized identities to insist on that same type of cost for participation because it is not okay to be one BIPOC on an editorial board of 30 people. Uh, last I checked, music analysis in England had like 30 people, 30 white people, for example. Um, I'm not sure it wasn't quite 30. I don't know the number exactly, but go ahead, just check it out. Um, this is important work. Uh, the utter lack of representation is a problem. And it's not something that can be swept under the rug and, and simply said, oh, well, that's really not that important. What's important is that we had at our conference a paper on Aretha Franklin. We are we have reached the promised land. Written by there was a, a white man, most likely. Obvious. Yeah. Well, of course, but that doesn't matter. Yeah, that's not important. It was a white cisgender man who gave the paper, but no, no, no. It was it was on Aretha Franklin, and it made it past the program committee, and we have reached the promised land. We don't need to do anything anymore because there was an Aretha Franklin paper, and can we just talk about that Aretha Franklin paper a little bit more? Because by golly, she was a very good singer, as it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, I think something that I think about a lot is the, um, Lauren Kajikawa just published a, an essay about yeah. hip hop and, and curricula. And yeah. I haven't been able to, Brilliant. I haven't been able to read the whole thing, but the idea of as, as popular music becomes more and more commonplace in curricula, it's really being swept into the, um, it's being normalized in a way that is erasing a lot of its, I mean, this documented history. And actually on that topic, I think of Robert Walzer, one of the people for whom your fellowship with the ACLS is named for. And in his mm -hmm. book on heavy metal, cause my initial forays into music theory was heavy metal analysis. In the first mm -hmm. pages of his book on heavy metal, he talks about, you can't talk about heavy metal without recognizing its lineage to African-American popular music practices. And mm -hmm. it's just yep. the truth. And and what I appreciate it so much about his, about that approach is like, and it, and it resembles what you see in a lot of sociology research too, is that there's no equivocating about these facts. It's accepting these facts. And then what do we do with this here? And, and, That's right. and I do worry about um, a lot of popular music research that, takes subject matter that has a rich non-white cultural context and just doesn't even discuss that. And I... Yeah, we definitely have that quite often in music theory. And I have friends and colleagues who do research in jazz and in rap and hip hop, and it happens too often. Uh, not to, not to um, uh, denigrate anybody's work uh, who's, who's, who's clearly likes the music, right? 
Um, I would just encourage anybody who's writing on uh, musics that could reasonably be called black American genres, right? Rap and jazz, for example. I would encourage anybody to just do a deep dive, add, add part to the next uh, thing you do, just talk about race. It's totally on the table and it's fine. And the links are not difficult to make. And a, a discussion about race and structural racism with respect to these musics only makes the, the scholarship better. It is not something to, to, to shy away from. It's something actually to lean into. And, uh, and I'm happy to see that lots of people actually are leaning into these difficult uh, discussions. Lauren is, is great at doing that. He's uh, written some really, really very interesting stuff to uncover some of the white supremacist roots of what we do. Um, and that is, of course, what I do uh, as well, to an extent. Absolutely. I think um, just to, to heap more praise on you, something I appreciate so much about your research is its interdisciplinarity, using understanding that music scholarship as it exists is not really capable of analyzing itself in this along these facets of identity using other information from other disciplines analytical frameworks from other disciplines to point these things out it makes th it makes it so clear there's a um, samuel floyd has an essay toward a theory of diaspora African diaspora aesthetics or something like that from 1998. Mm -hmm. And he talks about mm -hmm. the, the Tresio rhythm, three, three, two, ba, 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 as like an aural connection from mm -hmm. Africa to the Caribbean and then to the United States. You hear that rhythm all the time in popular music. Just simply oh, just say, listen for this rhythm it is a artifact of the of that history of that lineage it's mm -hmm. not that mm -hmm. complicated um yeah and uh yeah uh, well on, on sorry gary oh go. no no you go you go i i was just going to say that you know one thing that music theory has done extremely effectively is to sever those types of connections all in a service of promoting what is at the end of the day a struck a racist structure and a, and, a, and a sexist structure or as or as Ibram Kendi says it's redundant to say a racist structure because racism already is a structure so essentially to promote racism and sexism a better way to say it is to promote the legacy of white supremacy and patriarchy and to keep it up on top of the hill so that it doesn't get toppled they it's it's a, it's kind of a for for the people who want to maintain the status quo who are very conservative who want to both sides everything and who actually want to debate me about my own humanity and i'm not going to do that uh it's a zero-sum game and that is so unfortunate because uh, it, it's not gonna work out well for them. Uh, I, I can make a very simple prediction that they will lose this battle, right? It's not going to be the same racist and sexist structures in music theory that we have had ever since it was, you know, dreamt up in the mid 20th century. Uh, what would be much more useful uh, in my opinion for them is to uh, take a deep breath, take a few steps back, accept the fact that some of these things are in fact quite unjust and they were erected with unjust uh, injustice in mind and they should uh, you know realize that not not only will dismantling whiteness and dismantling maleness allow for a more inclusive and welcoming environment not just in music theory but in the academic study of music I would hope 
that ultimately after, after several deep breaths, uh, white cisgender male colleagues would see that they themselves will be enormously enriched in what they do in the classroom, outside the classroom, in their own scholarship. It will be emancipating uh, for themselves if they can somehow uh, realize that uh, these changes will happen and it's not about canceling Schubert, not at all. Schubert is going to have a seat at the table once all the smoke clears. Uh, what it is, is about making music and the study thereof more inclusive and welcoming. Yes, for our students, but for ourselves, for ourselves. That's really what it is about. There, there's a Bell Hooks essay called um, Eating the Other, where she talks about how first white people need to realize that they too are dominated by white supremacy. That's right. And I think we were talking before, we've talked a little bit about like the labor situation in higher ed right now. And, and particularly for early career academics, it's, it's pretty bad. Um, one way, you know, making the music school bigger creates more jobs for everyone. It's, we all right. benefit. And, but what's an interesting detail in that Bell Hooks essay is an, a piece of media that she brings up as like a great example of what to, of how to approach as a white person, like confronting white supremacy is the movie Hairspray, the original movie mm -hmm. Hairspray and how Tracy Turnblatt is invested in the liberation of her black peers as part of her mm -hmm. own liberation. And I, and I think the point that you, you make about when when white academics white leaders in academia like accept this we all benefit from it too i think that's a that's right. really powerful point and i'm glad that you yeah. you made that and it made me think of that bell hooks essay which is a interesting read um yeah well i think we have covered so much and i'm so grateful for your time today and just like the first time we met I, f I could talk That's to you right. for so long. Um, oh, you too, Garrett. Thank you so much for having me. I well, thank, thank you so much for being here. And I just before we go, I wanted to give you an opportunity to let people know if they want to follow your work more closely, um, experience um, your your writing or, or other um, publication, quote unquote, that you do through these talks and tweets and different things. Mm -hmm. Where can people find you? Oh, absolutely. So uh, my website, of course, is a, is the first place to go, philipewell.com, P-H-I-L-I-P-E-W-E-L-L.com. Um, I tend to put things up at the top that are happening, you know, soon. Uh, my blog is musictheorieswhiteracialframe.com. Uh, no apostrophe, uh, no possessive apostrophe in theories. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also announce things there. You can follow me on Twitter at... Uh, at at Phil Ewell, P-H-I-L-E-W-E-L-L. -L. And um, I tend to announce things on Twitter more and more. Uh, you kind of get sucked into Twitter, right? Oh, totally, it's, uh, totally. It's just one of those things that, well, I have a, this Black History Month project going on, Erasing Color Asia right now, where I just tweet out every day um, a person who has been erased by American music theory who was Black. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of such figures. Um, but then once you actually start doing a, a Twitter project like that, you can get sucked in quite quickly. Um, but I think that covers the main bases. Uh, I list all the talks that I'm giving on my website under research and then presentations. Um, 
I don't often put in the links for those talks, but generally they're open to the public. And if you just, oh, Phil's giving a talk at, uh, you know, at University X coming up in a week, I just go to them and just put in my name and, and the Department of Music at that University X and you're probably going to come up to a link. And, and I do try to do it on Twitter uh, as well to, to announce big talks as well. Well, I, I am hopeful about the future because you are helping lead it. And I think you're doing such a great job with everything you're thank doing. Thank you, Garrett. So, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you so much. Now, thank you all again so much for listening to my conversation with Philip Ewell. Before we go, Phil asked that I share a piece by Undine Smith Moore because uh, we talked a lot about her today. And uh, he specifically requested this performance of the solo piano piece Before I'd Be a Slave by pianist Maria Corley from her 2006 album Soulscapes, which is available on Albany Records. So I hope you enjoy, and once again, thank you for listening to this interview with Philip Ewell.
Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com. <laughs>